Welcome to Felony Miami, where we have real conversation with real people about the criminal justice system right here in America. Lies, truth, some people live it, some people tell it, and some people mix both into one and don't do either very well. But when it comes to the criminal justice system, it's been said there are three sides to every story, his, hers, and the truth. No matter which category you fall into, there's one thing you should never do if you're on the other side of the interrogation table. Talk, not a single word other than lawyer. Remember, you have the right to remain silent. It's your constitutional guarantee. And if you don't use it, you could lose its benefit. Before you know it, the entire weight of the system is on your back and you could end up behind bars. Confessions are not always accurate or truthful, but when coerced, the accused become their own worst enemy and the presumption of innocence is out the window. And when there is injustice for one, there is injustice for all. Welcome to Felony Miami. Let's air it out. Hello and welcome to Felony Miami. I'm your host, Joe Stone. Welcome back. In today's program, we have three guests. We're going to be talking about coerced confessions. To my right, Matthew Ladd. Matthew Ladd is a former prosecutor with the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. He's prosecuted thousands of cases ranging from misdemeanors to felonies, including high-profile cases, cases involving violent crimes, child abuse, theft, and murder. After fulfilling his commitment to the state attorney, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, he served then-House Speaker Marco Rubio in the Florida House of Representatives. While in the legislature, Mr. Ladd assisted in the creation of legislation related to the criminal justice foreclosure rescue services, public safety, auto insurance, immigration reform, property tax, homeowner, and condominium association reform, and compensation for the wrongfully incarcerated. And he is also uh, involved in issues with the Innocence Project. Thank you for being here, Matthew. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. And, good afternoon. And directly across from me, Mr. Jeffrey S. Weiner, uh, nationally board certified in criminal defense with over 44 years of experience, state, federal, and international criminal defense practice. He is a former president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and a former president of the Florida Criminal Defense Attorneys Association. He has also co-authored the 2018 Federal Criminal Rules and Codes, plus an important reference resource for attorneys, judges throughout these United States. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Maggie Adias. <laughs> Did I say that right? Adias. Adias. Okay. Yes. Maggie Adias was born in New York City and moved to South Florida when she was five years old. She packed her suitcase and came down here to Miami. Thank you for making the trip. Uh, she was raised in Miami, Florida and graduated from Lord's Academy. After graduating from the University of Florida with a bachelor's degree in criminology, Maggie attended the Stetson University College of Law in St. Petersburg. Maggie has handled thousands of criminal cases. She brings her tenacious and aggressive style to defending the rights of criminally accused 
and of immigrants facing deportation. It is Maggie's personal and professional mission to provide the highest quality legal representation to all of her clients. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. All right. So uh, here's the thing. We understand that sometimes people admit to doing crimes that they maybe didn't do. So my first question is, what do you guys know about these coerced confessions, forced uh, forced upon people? How, do, how does that happen? How does that, how does that even happen? Like, Well, let me just say that a lot of the confessions that are coerced, they're not forced. They're coerced by police officers and federal agents, but mostly police officers, that have very few restrictions. They can lie to people. They can make up evidence that they have. They can talk about witnesses that they have that they really don't. And when you couple that with the fact that they often get confessions from juveniles, from people who are under the influence of alcohol or drugs, who have mental illness, who want to try to curry favor with the police officers, even though they're innocent, um, who don't want to look bad by not cooperating with the police. Those are just some of the factors that allow people who are actually innocent to confess or to admit to crimes that they had nothing to do with. And it happens all the time. And unscrupulous police officers become quite adept at extracting those confessions so they can close cases. And is that the bottom line that they just want to, all right, let's wrap this up. Whether you're guilty or not, we just want to move on to the next. Go ahead. I, I think for the most part, the police have a good faith belief that they're convinced that the person did whatever it is that they're accusing him of. And they want to wrap it up, not have to look for any more evidence or get any more corroboration with End it with a confession. Just tell us you did it, and this will all be done. And in the case of juveniles, like Jeff mentioned, juveniles are taught, like we, we teach all kids, you know, kids grow up believing. If you just admit you did it, you'll get a lighter punishment. Take responsibility for what you did. And there's no question, I mean, there, a case, you know, I handled not long ago, the person had an alibi that checked out, but he confessed to the crime, to a, to a robbery with a pistol whipping. So, you know, why would someone do that if they didn't do it? So, diminished mental capacity, mental illness, they're just kids. And they bought, and they bought the line that the police sell them that, listen, you can go home. You can just get out of here if you just tell us you did it. Even when, in the instances that these things are recorded on video or on tape, a lot of the stuff you need to see isn't on video or on the on the recording. So you don't see the background. You just get the press record now. Okay, I did it. I, I went in through the window. Stop, rewind. You went in through the front door. Re-record. I went in through the front door. Can I go home now? Wow. So it, it, that's the, what I'm telling you, and I don't have the stats on this. I would believe that coerced confessions are a very low amount in the whole scheme of it all. All officers, you know, are not to be disparaged here. But I would say that, you know, in the few unscrupulous incidents where this occurs, and I would think it's a very uh, few instances, it does happen. And, you know, it's just the nature of the imperfect system that we have. Maggie? Yeah, I think nowadays people are really aware of police coercion tactics. I mean, there's so much on television, Netflix, <clears throat> You know, CBS, NBC shows are really all police centric. Uh, they're all about law and order. 
and the types of shows that will show someone who's either wrongfully arrested or someone who is correctly convicted. And I think to Jeff's and, and, and Matt's point, one is you got to look at the tactics that they're allowed to use. I mean, like Jeff pointed out, police officers are permitted to lie, which means that they could present you with information about having forensic evidence, fingerprints, DNA, clothing that ties you to the crime. And while you know in your heart of hearts that you didn't do it, if you've been interrogated for eight, 10, 12 hours on and off, you've got very little sleep, you don't know your rights, you might not be familiar with how to get out of this, you might think to yourself, well, if I confess, I know I'm innocent, I'll hire a lawyer and I will prove my innocence once I am released. Not realizing that the confession is, you know, going to impede the release process uh, and, and not at all be helpful, no matter how innocent you think you are and how much you think you can prove it through the system, which we know is flawed. Have you guys ever had a case where you knew that it was a coerced confession? And you oh, had yeah. To- yeah. I, I, I yeah. think we all have. And, it's, <laughs> and while, Matt, I agree with you that this is not in a high percentage of cases, it's a significant percentage. I, uh, in preparation for today, did a little research, and according to the statistics, more than one out of four people who are wrongfully convicted and exonerated by DNA evidence, so clearly they were wrongly convicted, had given a confession. So One in four. More than one in four. More than than one in four. So it happens. And I agree with Matt. There's a lot of really good police officers who would— just don't do this, but there are a lot of them who do. And unfortunately, the law, even though we talk about the presumption of innocence, it's not a reality. It's a presumption of guilt in court, yeah. and especially in federal court, yeah. but in state court too. Even the court of public opinion. That's exactly right. You normally right. see somebody, you're like, ah, that guy did it until you're, exactly until you're right. shown uh, differently. Right. Sure. And you, yeah, might not even, you might not even encounter a client who will come forward and say, I falsely confessed. There are clients who don't even remember the interrogation. I had, I had a lucky case when I was uh, still working as a state public defender where my client, and we were in felony court, so I can't remember the charge, but I know it was serious. I think it might have been an aggravated battery of some sort, um, where there were two people involved and we were trying to determine who was really the aggressor here because that would have been the person who would have been charged and on the waiver rights form you know you have the right to an attorney yes no right the officer detailed at the bottom in handwriting that my client had actually blown um, on the breath alcohol uh, test a 0.38 that was a huge red flag Okay, because he had indicated that, in his opinion, the defendant was really off his rocker when it came to uh, being under the influence. So how really then does he have the mental capacity to waive his rights to an attorney and to give you any kind of statement that would make sense? And so it was astounding to me that, that the state attorney's office in that situation actually filed the charge. And they we, actually went through with filing and, and taking Oh, yeah, it. yeah. They, they actually went through with filing it. And, and, of course, you know, we had a hearing to suppress that confession, which was granted. And so the case had to be proven in a different route, you know, thanks to the judge who, you know, 
had the hearing and ha- heard from everyone and, you know, the detective who had written those notes. That's, a, I guess, another good question. How many times in your guys' uh, experience are these coerced confessions um, looked at by the, by the judge and, and not admitted? If the defense attorney brings it to the judge's attention, but you know that's that's a gamble right there. The defense attorney has to have evidence that it's coerced, and the best evidence is something other than your client saying no. They they pulled an Andy Sipowitz on me. You know, it's like it's got to be something better. You know, it's in the case that I that that I was mentioning earlier. I happened to have the kid on video at the same time of the incident that he was alleged to have broken into. How often somewhere else. are you on video somewhere mm-hmm. else that you're able to, you know, in this <laughs> case, cool. it was the school board, you know, and in the, it was he was at school in the cafeteria in a place that had videos and the video just so happened to be of a quality that I could, you know, me, a relative stranger to the kid was able to identify him. Right. That's such a rare circumstance. Yeah, it rare. never happens. Yeah. So you know, it's like Maggie saying, even if you get rid of the confession, is there another way for them to prove the case? Um, you know, and that's. You know, that's ultimately the, the right. I guess, the bigger question of whether you even bring it to a judge or so, not. So, but you just said it's it's risky to bring that up in front of a judge, whether or not it was a coerced confession. Why would it be risky? What's the downside? You're negotiating a plea offer, right? So, when you're bringing it up to the state attorney, look, you know, let's let's work out a deal here where my guy's looking at 15 years of prison on the maximum, you know, on the maximum side. I think he should be able to get boot camp or diversion. And they'll say, we'll entertain that type of plea offer, but they don't want you to, you know, pull shenanigans of disparaging the officers over something that we can't prove. So we make an aspersion against a police officer that we can't prove. We force a hearing in front of a judge that takes two hours or whatever it takes, all for nothing. And, you know, ultimately the state attorney looks at that and says, look, you get rewarded for taking responsibility for your actions early. If you do that, you're going to get a lighter sentence, maybe boot camp, maybe probation, maybe diversion. If you don't and you lose the suppression hearing of the confession, you've only made the, the state's case stronger. It seems like it seems like the state attorney's office is pulling the same thing that the cop that's lying and saying they have evidence is pulling. They're trying to negotiate a plea and saying, well, if you do this or don't do that, it's almost like what you said in the beginning, Jeff, about how we're taught to behave and answer to authority, or maybe it was you, Matt, that said that because now the state attorney's office seems like they're pulling the same thing in this particular instance. What you're Some saying. prosecutors know that certain police officers are not honorable. But I have found that the majority in Kathy Rundle's office look the other way and will support the police officer's version, even when they know it's not true. So I want to tell you briefly about two cases involving confessions. When I was a young lawyer in 1974, before you were probably born. (laughs) A couple um, years. I represented a fellow named William Alvarado. He was deaf from birth. And I... Remember distinctly when I first got the case, he was in custody. I read the arrest form that said that he had made a full confession and there was a detailed confession in the narrative portion of the arrest form. I then met this fellow's family and they said he couldn't have confessed. He hasn't spoken a word from the day he was born. He is deaf, he has mental issues, etc. I got all of the medical records and absolutely proved it. The case got dismissed. The judge lambasted the police officer, but nothing happened to the police officer. Mm -hmm. He went on to have a a stellar career, 
And that's one of the problems. There is virtually no discipline from Kathy Rundle's office against police officers in the overwhelming majority of cases when they lie. And Kathy's my friend. She's great. She's wonderful. But the reality is police officers don't get charged when they shoot people. They don't get charged when they lie, which is a daily occurrence in the courthouse. Not in every case and certainly not by every officer, but a daily occurrence. And I would tell you that I can't imagine a judge or a prosecutor denying that perjury is routine all day, every day in the courthouses. And I want to tell you one more very quick story. I had a case a few years ago involving a boating homicide in the Keys. Two guys were drinking, driving the boat, hit a mile marker, one was ejected and died. My client was charged with driving the boat and causing the death. He confessed to five people, to Marine Patrol officers, to police officers, to the nurse in the hospital, etc. This is not a coerced confession, but he felt so guilty causing the death of his friend. Well, we were able to prove to a jury and get a not guilty verdict that he was not driving. He couldn't have been driving, and we proved it. So I just want to take this one step further that although we're talking about coerced confessions, very oftentimes people confess for different reasons, believing that they really did do something wrong when they in fact did not. Sure. Yeah, and I would I would add to that, and Jeff can tell you, Matt can tell you that in certain circumstances, you're not interested in turning over your cards. You're not interested in negotiating the point. What you want is to drive it home. And the only card you may have will be something that you can utilize during the trial, getting the jury in your client's favor. And, you know, this is something that whether or not you're prosecute, very few prosecutors, very few, the good ones, and you guys know which ones I'm talking about, very few prosecutors are people that you can trust with your cards. You tend to hold your cards close to your chest. And the reason for that is that you have to serve your client's interests. And it doesn't serve your client's interests to have a bad prosecutor communicate to the officers what your theory of defense is. So you would only share that if you knew that the prosecutor in good faith is going to pursue the correct route to try to see justice for your client. And very few, I would say a handful of prosecutors I've ever met in my life, both in state court and in federal court, will help you make that happen. Now, Matt would have done it as a prosecutor. Oh, that's very kind. I, 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 I have to come to the defense of the office. I was there between 2003 <laughs> to 2006. Uh, I don't know of a prosecutor who would in any way want to convict anyone that is innocent. And if they have evidence, if the, the public defender or the defense attorney, whomever it was, had evidence to exonerate the person or to say, hey, something's not on the up and up here. Someone else did it on a not me defense. Or look, we've got video. Here's the alibi. And in the case that I can speak to, alibi checked out, prosecutor dismissed it. And you know, I can't speak to the officers in Miami in the 1970s. I've heard stories. I'm huge fan of Miami Vice, the reruns. I'm a little too young to watch them when I was uh, when they were on the first time around. 
Miami's a different place than it was then. I think our state attorney's office, in relation to other places, other counties in the state, we have prosecutors that are, you know, open-eared. They'll they'll check it out. And if the person's a little too young to exercise any type of discretion, it goes up to the next ring of, of staff that you know. But you need and, one golden ticket. And you know what it is, which is a prosecutor that reads the file. Because how many times have you encountered, even you, Matt, working with your ex-colleagues, prosecutors who don't really know their case, right, Jeff? That's true, but I think I think it's something more. I don't disagree, Matt, with what you said. However, it's very easy for a good and honorable prosecutor who agreed, doesn't want to put an innocent man or woman in custody and get them to be convicted felons. But what they do is they take the easy way out, saying, hey, listen, I don't know what happened. Why shouldn't I believe the police officer? I have to work with him every day. Let a judge decide. Let a jury decide. So in that sense, when they really know in their heart of hearts that there is an injustice here, many of them look the other way and just say, whatever. It's not It's not my problem. If you win in court, great. I'm happy. I've had cases where I've gotten a not guilty and the prosecutor will come up and say, I'm so glad. I really didn't think your client was guilty. And, and it shake was, your and, hand. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, my God, why did you go forward with this? This is not a this right. is not a game, right? Which and makes it's not this ethical. happens, right? It's not ethical, because, right. And I mean, to to what Matt was saying, to me, in the conversations we've had on this program and the stories I've heard, it it occurs to me that a lot of these young prosecutors, they're there to prosecute, and they want to get the win. and they feel wanna, they're on a mission from God. Correct. And they're going to get everyone. Not that many, but there are some like that. Yeah. And they don't you, get fresh out of Fresh out of law school, and they're like, hey, I'm here to prosecute. I'm going to get my stars. Well, they, there's certainly that. And as a young prosecutor, you're jazzed up, and you read what the police has told you and why they allege it. And 99.9% per, per, of the cases, the allegations are... Check out. You know, I mean, you, you take that to trial, a jury will convict on it. And that's ultimately how the imperfect system works, right? Allegations are, are sufficient to present to a jury, and it's up to a jury to decide. Now, if there's something that's inadmissible, something that a defense attorney says, hey, look, here's the reason why this is completely wrong, you check it out. And if the young level prosecutor doesn't, you know, doesn't buy into it or, listen, I'm just here to salute and do the job, you take it up to a supervisor. Right. And, and we all know the supervisors. They've been there for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And and they, they'll they hear you out. I mean, some will. J- Jeff, they'll, they'll pick will. up your phone call. I, I know that for sure because you're <laughs> Jeff Wee. Yeah, but, but, uh, but you, that's like, you're also talking about situations where you have uh, private attorneys that are representing people and that's their focus is obviously on that person. When it comes to um, public defenders, we – listen, I believe that the public defenders – do want to do a good job and have a lot of resources, but they're I also the believe they're also they're the heroes yeah, of the system. I believe they're also overburdened. No well, question. But no question yeah. about it, Jeff. Um, but they they are trying cases day in day out. They're jumping on cases with colleagues all the time when they're not in trial themselves. Uh, I was at the prosecutor's, I was at the public defender's office for over five years, back when Bennett Brummer was still a public defender. Uh, He served in that post for 29 years uh, before Carlos Martinez, who you interviewed recently, um, uh, uh, started as as the state PD. And what what I learned from that experience is that we are overwhelmed as public defenders, but we're the, we're the ones in the trenches. 
And the issues are collectively shared in that office with the hundreds of lawyers, right? Yeah. So you've got juvenile attorneys uh, representing juveniles. You've got misdemeanor attorneys doing the misdemeanor cases. Um, and then you go, you have the A, B, and C attorneys um, handling the different types of felony cases. Right. And everyone does this uh, camaraderie, sharing the wins, the losses. How did I get this wrong? And there's a sense of teamwork. And you learn from that experience. A lot of private defense attorneys who are either out there solo or sharing an office with someone don't have a group of other brains to share with. So unless you keep that tightness, that group together somehow, you've got to have your circle. I mean, all of us do this. Some of my best work, Joe, is either stolen or borrowed um, from sure. listening to someone's yeah. greatest uh, hits in their closing arguments sure. or even opening statements where I just stayed floored. I've got to use that in my next case. But Joe, yeah, I, I, wanted, I, I love that you you said that out loud. That's kudos. Of course. And we all do that. That's yeah, why yeah. the seminars are so important. Listen, you see the gold records on the walls in here. You don't think that these all came from original ideas, do you? <laughs> There's only so many notes on a keyboard. But go back to the public defender discussion for a moment, if you will. There's a real problem all over the country where prosecutors have, I don't want to say unlimited resources, but when they need the resources, they get it. Yeah. The public defenders don't have that. When I was president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, I was asked to go to Puerto Rico to support the criminal defense lawyers who refused to go to court. They were making half the salary of the prosecutors. They had no investigators assigned to their office. They had no money for what we call demonstrative evidence, blowing up photographs nice and large, making charts, hiring expert witnesses. The whole system was rigged against fairness. And we changed that, but it still is not right I testified in Louisiana. The public defenders had the same thing. They had no money. The judges would say, I'm not going to grant you money to hire an expert, which was necessary to defend the person accused. So the disparity of, of the prosecutor's resources compared to the public defender's resources is absolutely unfair and a gigantic problem because I'm sure... 95, 96, 97% of all criminal cases, especially in state court, are represented by public defenders who are the real heroes of our system. Yeah, yeah no, and I, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly that, that uh, the public defender's office, those people are definitely doing great work. They are out there doing great work. I'm curious, um, in your experience, uh, What's the most uh, egregious case you've been involved with where you thought that somebody was falsely accused or that the, the police officers were lying? Uh, you gave us a couple of good stories, Jeff. I'm curious if Matt or Maggie, you have any uh, stories that you can hit us with, so, something that was just outrageous in your career. Well, so I had a case uh, at the public defender's office with a late um, – uh, public defender who passed away recently, uh, who who started his career as as a sheriff, and later became a public defender. <clears throat> and he said, "Maggie, we're going to trial." I said, "All right." And he said, "And you're going to pick the jury." And I remember my supervisors sitting down in awe because I wasn't supposed to pick a jury on an A case. I was only doing B cases. 
but here I was, and I was picking a jury, and the question uh, that I had presented to the people who were in the veneer was, why would someone falsely confess? And the judge, who at the time was Roberto Diaz, himself said, objection, sustained. So I turned around, <laughs> and I thought, okay, so he's decided to play prosecutor today, and I know, Roberto, we're good friends. Um, and, I, and I asked the question again, and I switched it a little bit, and he said again, objection sustained. Not the prosecutor speaking here, the judge. And finally, on the third try, I nailed it. And what I said was, could you conceive of a reason why someone might decide to say that they committed a crime when in fact they didn't? And I looked at the judge cringing and expecting him to say <laughs> objection. And he said, okay. And I was able to extract the answers from the potential jurors to figure out where they fit in the case. We lost that case, um, sadly. But in the case, the interesting part was that the evidence that had been presented to the defendant at the time of the arrest was a Polaroid photo. Um, there were no prints in the car. It had been alleged that he held up a gun to a very elderly woman wearing glasses, um, sort of like a My Cousin Vinny, how thick were your glasses type situation. You know, gun pointed in your face. How much are you really focused on, the, on what this guy looks like type mm -hmm. thing? No prints in the car. It was alleged that he had driven around with her in the car for over two hours. And you're going to tell me that you don't leave DNA skin cells, spit, or something on that, uh, on the windshield or somewhere near in the driving area. And he had signed, they called it a confession. He never actually wrote a narrative confession, but he had signed his initials on the Polaroid photo of the car. Um, and the officers did not have a recorded confession, used those initials to indicate that, that he was identifying where he had been it was a remarkable case. Um, and I can tell you that for me, it, it was my, my first introduction to trying to confirm through a jury, a potential jury made up of you know, lawyers, um, you know, dentists, teachers, who I don't know what their position is on whether or not they believe a confession could actually be extracted from an innocent person, but the question had to be asked the right way. And the judge pushed me to ask it in such a way where I wasn't calling it a false confession. He wanted me to say it in such a way where I wasn't trying to impute the result on whoever was answering my question. Right. So th that to me is my most impressive situation, but only because I was, you know, I was sort of like whipped by, by Roberto Diaz until I got <laughs> it right and to his satisfaction. Um, and it's obviously funny because we all know Roberto and I was in his division for 18 months. I was in his division for 18 months and uh, it was a long training with him. Uh, and now he's, of course, in the family bench in circuit court. But Actually, he presided over my divorce. <laughs> there we go. Um, but now you're happily married, so it all worked out. I am. <laughs> all right. So I had a case early on, one of the first trials I had when I, was a def when I became a defense attorney, and it was in Palm Beach. And the exact circumstances that, you, that Jeff was talking about— this is a case where me and the prosecutor, and I, I'm 5'4", since it's on the radio, in real, real life probably 5'3", um, 
the prosecutor was every bit a basketball player. I mean, this guy's seven feet tall as far as I'm concerned. And we got into it, a yelling, screaming match towards the end after the jury um, retired to deliberate. And my client had given a confession. Yes, I had sex with the girl. But the, our position was this was a case of regret, not rape. And it, the jury acquitted. And we believed he'd been wrongfully accused from the start. We felt if the prosecutor had just seen the things as we had, and granted there was something the officer did not translate for those English-only prosecutors that would have helped the prosecutor reach the decision that the jury reached that we brought out at trial in transcription form and made a big deal about, um, I, that would have changed um, That would have changed everything. So it David Rank, I, you probably know. I, I don't know if you know David Rank, mm -hmm. Maggie. Um, he was my division chief at the state attorney's office. And one thing he always said about confessions, he says, they're never truly confessions. They're usually some sort of self-serving statement as to, yeah, I took the bread. I had to feed my family. There's always some good reason behind it. And that actually goes to corroborate that the confession's a legitimate thing. I mean, yes, I did it, and I'm very sorry that I did it. And, okay, well, he's sorry he did it. If you get the... Yes, I did it. I went in through the window. I pistol whipped that kid, period. You know, it's like <laughs> some, something's not right about that. Where's the self-serving statement? Why'd you do it? This kid punked you at school. You had some, you know, moral reason for doing it. So, I mean, I, I think that that's one way of evaluating confessions, how they, you know, how they lead to a wrongful accusation. And, and, and I want to add something to what Matt said. When you're talking about a sexual, alleged sexual misconduct, when the police don't record a confession, they will very often talk about intercourse, let's say, and get the person to acknowledge, yes, we had intercourse, but it was consensual. But when you read the arrest report or the narrative from the police report, all it says typically is the defendant admitted, admitted. that he had intercourse. And never the explanation to go with it, or right. I shouldn't say never, but rarely. Right. And that's one of the problems. And so I would like, if you don't mind, to make a suggestion as to how these miscarriages of justice can be cured. And one way is going back to what Matt suggested earlier, and that is record from the very beginning. Because what happens is the police get these people in a room they go over it and over it and over it and correct them and tell them, why don't you say this? Or we have a witness who said this. And before you know it, they have the whole story mapped out, and that's when the tape recorder goes on. Yeah, wouldn't that and be like horrible. basic common sense that it, wouldn't somebody say, wait a minute, we'd like to see the three hours prior to this? Sure, but oh, the police, yeah. well, oh, we don't <laughs> have a recorder. We didn't have one that day. Our department doesn't have the funds for it. Uh, I mean, they come up with every excuse in the world, just like with body cameras. When right. the police beat people up, you know, the cameras all of a sudden don't work. I didn't wear it that day, you know. An and excuse. the judges look the other way in almost every case. And that's a, a big frustration that I will speak for yeah. myself, but I think we all agree. Right. We want justice to be done. Right. And we want fairness. Yes. And if after a fair trial a person is convicted, well, then the system will have worked in almost every case. Right. But the unfairness is what we can't stand, and that's what keeps us up at night. Yeah, the but injustice for all is, is, uh, is what we're all about. Yeah. Because, you know, when there's injustice for one, 
there's justice for all. Well, there's no question the system is human and the system is flawed and it may be the most perfect system there is, but it's not perfect, right? right? I mean, guilty people get off probably by a greater percentage, by a much greater percentage than innocent people get convicted. And that is how the system is designed, right? And so, you know, in Miami, and, and Jeff, I'm sure you, you've gone all over the state. I mean, I've been to a few different counties in Maggie the same way. It's a lot better here in Miami. Yes. Oh, yeah. But no question about it, our state attorney's office, I think our police force, I up and down the, the entire system to ensure that innocent people aren't convicted and only if you're truly guilty. I mean, in Miami, sometimes it takes the fifth time for you to really be asking for it before you actually go away for any substantial time. Right. And We're generally got- liberal in this county. And what Matt's saying is, is so true because most counties, you go from Broward up, and Jeff will agree as well, you go Broward up and you've got God-fearing folk who make up the jury. Okay, but what do we have in Miami that we don't have up there? We have juries that aren't afraid to call cops liars. Why? Because we consistently read in the Miami Herald and other publications that are well-respected about the frequency with which officers lie on reports. And back to Jeff's point for a second about the system of unfairness. What do I want? I would love to have a comprehensive police report for once uh, that reads like it should. If you're an officer of the law and you come into this, you didn't witness the crime, then you need to tell the story from both sides. Am I right? You cannot simply impute uh, guilt to the defendant just because he's the person who people or or someone pointed the finger at. Mm-hmm. And and last thing I wanted to say is um, if there are any public defenders who are listening to this uh, today is to keep up the good fight. And the case I mentioned earlier was with, God bless him, Bill Surowick. So I, I figured that you knew, but sure. I, I wanted sure. to make sure that uh, the PDs out there know how much we all love Bill. And I want to mention one other thing to follow up on what Maggie said. Very often, the police take the side of whoever calls 911 first. Mm -hmm. And it is a frustration that we all feel, all meaning those of us on this panel, but every lawyer who goes into court on a criminal case, the judges feel it. It's wrong, and it's a race to call 911, and not in every case, but in the majority of cases, that's the person who gets labeled the victim, even when they're not. So there's a lot of frustration. The police are overwhelmed with cases. They're very, very busy. And if they can close a case out quickly with an arrest, their arrest is, uh, their attitude is what many prosecutors are, and that is, hey, listen, I don't know what happened. You're under arrest, you're going to jail, Work it out with the prosecutor, with the judge. I'm done. I've done my job. And then the real problem comes in when the prosecutor says, listen, I hear you. Leave it to a judge or a jury. And there you go. And somebody's fate is determined by fate. That's not how it should be. Or by the luck of the draw. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as you said, you know, with jury selection, it's it's a tricky thing. It really is. That that in itself is a science. And I mean, you guys know from, from trying so many cases, we we get trained on how to do it, but it really is an art. And it's yeah. something that you perfect over time and you never really get it right. But, um, the, you know, what I like to do is I like to find out, you know, what book are you reading? What's the last book you read? 
Uh, because just even that, I see sometimes jurors who are walking in from the panel upstairs where they wait in the waiting room, and they know if they've been there before, Joe, they know to bring a good book or a magazine mm-hmm. because they know they're going to be bored until they get picked <laughs> to go down, right? And so they walk in, and I can't tell you how many times I or my colleagues sitting next to me have spotted a book in a hand that I, I thought, oh my God, I can't have this guy on the jury because he's reading Rush Limbaugh. Like, <laughs> seriously? I mean, like, or, well, you know, Well, in it, a self-defense case, you might want that <laughs> jury. Um, he is an ardent supporter of civil liberties. But I'll leave it in, at that. In, <laughs> he knows firsthand from his <laughs> little run-in with the pills. Well, hey, if it's a Xanax case, I, maybe I do uh, want that yeah. guy on my jury. But, but, he, poor but you know, there's... Dogged. It's like 12 Angry know. Men, that great movie. Oh, my God, when it's such a When you pick a jury, movie. I don't care how good you are at picking a jury and how fair the judge is in letting you ask open-ended questions. You never really know what goes through the minds of the jurors. And that's a a fascinating movie that, in many respects, is quite realistic. You could just be a fly on the wall. You should actually put a clip of that in the website for this thing. And the last thing I was going (laughs) to say is something that Matt and Jeff are are, are very aware of is we don't get the same shot at voir dire, at jury selection, in federal criminal court that we do in state court. We have so many more liberties so much more time is allotted to the defense and state yeah. uh, than in federal court. If you're lucky, you know, what I do in federal court is I'll file a motion with the proposed questions I'd like to ask. But, Jeff, I mean, you can speak to this as well. It's incredibly unfair. In state court, the state constitution and our rules of criminal procedure guarantee that a lawyer can actually talk with the prospective jurors. Not so in federal court. And jury selection in federal court in front of most of the federal judges is a meaningless process. They ask, what's your name? Where are you from? Where do you live? You ever been convicted of a crime? A few basic questions that give zero insight. Some judges will say, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll give each lawyer 10 minutes after I'm through. Uh, Federal court is as unfair as you can imagine with most of the judges. And people, unfortunately, don't realize it. There's no exchange of witness lists. There's no full exchange of evidence. It's it's a rough situation. The, not to indict the entire system. I feel like I'm the great defender of the status quo, and I've just I, I've not been in that position uh, that I can ever recall. But I, I can say this about the federal system: the defense work is done in the investigation. So once your client is targeted, that's when the defense attorney needs to get involved. That's when you're working on deals of whether you're going to assist in further in the investigation to get people upstream or not. Federal investigators are by large part, very well trained. The evidence that they have by the time it gets to a trial, if you're contesting it, it's because you don't have any other options. You know, there's no plea deal that's worth a darn and they've got you on video, hand in the cookie jar, and you're going to beg for mercy or see if a jury buys something that you might be willing to sell to them. So that's... Maybe by way of indictment, but on cases where it starts off as a criminal complaint, you might have a better chance. You know, I, I had a case once where my client, God bless her, was charged with uh, four counts, um, false claim to U.S. citizenship, um, uh, the use of a social security number, uh, which, by the way, had been, we, we'd found out throughout the investigation that that social security number had been assigned to her by the Social Security Administration. And this client had actually used, um, had had uh, applied for and obtained lawfully a, a U.S. passport, believing after she was 
in her late 20s that um, she was in fact born in the United States. Long story short, uh, this case was tried in federal court. We won. And I remember that Every single time a witness got up there, including they brought a witness from Jamaica, from the registrar office of where you would register a birth. Every time a witness got up there, Joe, what I did was I made that witness my witness because every single response out of that witness's mouth was, yes, that's true, or I agree. And the questions were framed in such a way, and this witness was, was particularly important, that in a place like Jamaica, where it was alleged that my client had been born, by the way, it is very common that births are not recorded for more than 90 days after the child is born, okay? This was crucial. Because in New, in New Jersey, which is the, the birth certificate that we had for her in the United States, um, in New Jersey, we have a similar provision, which says that you can record a birth. You could be 81 years old and have had a home birth, and no one bothered to record your birth in New Jersey until you turned 81. And you can record your birth at that stage. And so we used a consistent theme with every single week. That was the theme of my case. Um, that they had gotten this wrong. And luckily, my client was acquitted, had a 17-year-old son who was on his way to an Ivy League school. I mean, it, the whole thing was tragic. Um, but I do agree that in a case like that, I was lucky that I was able to get 10 minutes of a pre-requested questions. And the questions had to do with, what is your opinion of immigration in the United States. And now this case was 2013. We're not talking today, right. which I probably would be barred, especially if I was in front of Judge Altanaga or Ungaro. Um, but this case was was pretty fabulous. Well, I think the public will get a firsthand view of these issues as some of the Trump people like Mr. Manafort and Mr. Cohen, who I believe will probably be charged, will work their way through the system either by entering a plea or by going to trial. Now, the federal trials are not uh, viewed on TV, which is very, very unfortunate in my opinion. Uh, but nevertheless, with the good reporting, the public, I think, will see how it really works if either of those two gentlemen choose to go to trial. I wish the cameras could be in the federal courts. Mm -hmm. uh, when I argued before the United States Supreme Court, they record the audio. Mm -hmm. And you can listen to the audio of every argument, mm -hmm. uh, but you can't actually see it. You have to look at the, the little sketches. drawings. But at least if you hear it, you get a feel for what the lawyers are saying, what the judges are asking. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's it's fascinating. The more the public knows, the better it is. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, listen, that's the reason we do this show. The, the more educated our, our community can be, the better we can hopefully make decisions going forward in the future for our community and how we want to structure uh, the way crime is dealt with. Because there is, uh, we say this, there are criminals out there and there is crime and we need to deal with that. But uh, how do we deal with that after? And that's why we have these conversations. I want to ask you guys, um, I've, I've not asked this question to anybody since we started this program, uh, but I think this is a good panel to ask this question to. Uh, polygraphs. Great question. Um, I they've worked for me, and when I worked <laughs> at the state attorney's office, they they something we would rely on. Yeah. And you know, your your producer, we actually were discussing that before you got here, and um, he asked, you know, it's like, but are they reliable? Yeah. My my response to that was, are are people reliable? You know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a gut check. 
a human being, a police officer in many cases, and then we ask a prosecutor, and then we ask a judge, and then we ask a jury to make these assessments of credibility. Is this person telling the truth or not? Is a computer system program any more reliable than the, than the natural error that a human has of picking up on certain things? Gosh, you know, I, I, I'm willing to give it a shot. You know, in a, gee, I'm just not sure. Domestic violence cases are such a great example. He said, she said, no one else is in the room and someone's got a bruise or they don't. I mean, one of the great you know, cases that we had was our former mayor who used to be the head of the Miami-Dade police. He ended up in one of these cases with domestic violence. He said, she said, and I think the battery was a spit. So there's no evidence when the officer shows up. It's just her testimony. Mm -hmm. And like everyone said, you know, this report's going to get written up as everything she says, poor victim, against defendant who chose to remain silent. No statement against him. So you're left with the he said, she said, and now let's Send uh, you know, let's send our defendant over for a polygraph. It'd be great if the prosecutors used it for victims because so often in those <laughs> oh, cases, so, so often in those cases, the victims are so. You know, it, it, everyone's cut from the same cloth. You just don't know who to who to believe. So if. Uh, the Slattery firm is who we often use, and it's who I've used as the defense uh, attorney. They really put a lot of science behind it, and they're very confident in it. I've had them exonerate some of the most egregious sexual abuse cases, child abuse cases. They're they're the they're the go-to, and and you give that evidence to the prosecutor who doesn't know who to believe. You show them a little bit of science. Again, there's not a prosecutor that I've ever met that wants to convict an innocent person, nor is there a prosecutor that wants to lose a trial. So when you've got a compelling testimony saying, I didn't do it, I'm telling you I didn't do it, she's lying, and granted the evidence of the polygraph isn't going to come in, but you've given the prosecutor a gut check. So I, I think that polygraphs are huge, uh, very useful and a huge resource for us. They're a definite tool that we can use, but unfortunately, I have seen time and time again where the Dade County, Miami State Attorney's Office, uh, chooses not to rely on the polygraphs, even though the examiners are the same ones that they use all the time. So politics play into criminal cases, not all of them, but on certain high-profile cases, politics is part of it. And the reason the state attorney gets elected uh, and judges get elected in the state system, not federal, and politics is part of life. So I think it is quite naive to suggest that politics doesn't enter into some of these high-profile cases. Right, and I would add to that that uh, when a case is being decided for filing, so you've got the initial arrest and charge, but the prosecutor's office is still thinking about formalizing the charge into an indictment, into a charging document, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, like on child abuse cases, uh, you your prosecutor may say, look, if you're going to have them polyed, then I want these questions listed, uh, okay? Yeah. And so, again, this goes back to whether you have a good working relationship with a good prosecutor who's giving you point blank these are the things that need to be in that poly. And if they're not, I'm not going to care what's in there. Because they can choose to accept it or not accept it? Or, right. I mean, are they, they're not admissible they're not. as evidence in front of a jury. So right. that's why I said it's a tool. A good and honorable prosecutor will look at the polygraph okay. or 
multiple polygraphs right. from quality examiners, not these 15-minute employment mm-hmm. polygraphers, but right. the real ones that spend three, four, five hours, yep. that many are former law enforcement, mm-hmm. many are used by the state and by law enforcement agencies and police departments, and they'll consider it. Some won't. I have a case now where my client passed two polygraphs. We have numerous expert witnesses. And for whatever reason, the state just says, sorry, we're not interested. We're not buying it. Even though there's not a scintilla of evidence that the polygraphs aren't totally legit. So politics play into it. That's the way it is. It, it's uh, it. It seems to me that if um, if the polygraph can't be used, I guess as you said, it's a tool. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, is there any other tools in the toolbox that you guys would use besides a polygraph, uh, like in the confession situation where you know uh, maybe this guy is hundreds lied before. This guy is. I mean, can you use other tools? Yeah, I'd say there's hundreds. I mean, look, we had a case at the at the state public defender, um, uh, the unit that deals with homicides, and uh, I can't recall if it was a coerced confession case, but I can tell you that one of the major uh, one of the crux of the defense was whether or not the defendant could actually grow hair, and there's a medical condition uh, that prevented this gen- alopecia from from uh, from growing hair, and so. Um, you know, again, in that situation, what could have been exonerative for that defendant is getting an expert uh, who comes from a good academic pedigree, really good experience, testifying already, um, someone that the other side is not going to need extra vetting for, you know, because sometimes you'll present in court uh, an expert and the other side will say, well, I'm interested in voir this expert. You know, really, I want to question to see if they really are who they are um, or, or test that you're presenting he's an expert, but an expert in what? And they'll try to minimize the value of your expert. Right. Uh, but, you know, going back to what Jeff was saying, it's good that he pointed out multiple polys because whether you're using multiple polys or multiple uh, fields in uh, expertise in your case, you've got to stack the cards. And that's where we go full circle back to what we were talking about in the beginning that Jeff mentioned, which is um, the public defender's the resources that they can tap into. You know, you can pay in a, a defense attorney, you know, six figures to just do your case for the next five years. And yeah, I'm going to have every expert available to me. I'm going to travel the world looking for the right people. Yeah. And does, does the DNA evidence work these days? That's fully admissible. Absolutely. And, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. DNA is so important. I remember when DNA was in its infancy and Barry Sheck, who's a good friend of mine, who, yeah. who really started the Innocence Project, kept talking about DNA, and, and we really didn't fully understand what it was in the early days. And it has proven to uh, be, number one, absolutely reliable when done properly with proper labs, et cetera, and has uh, resulted in many innocent people who have been on death row or convicted of other crimes for which they were serving long periods of incarceration, being freed. And when you couple that with the phony confessions, yeah. you can see that while Matt is right, it's not a majority of cases, but there, it is a significant number of cases 
where there's real injustice that has taken place. Yeah. So if somebody's being, you're, I'm curious in your guys' um, suggestions, if somebody is being, feels that they're being coerced to give a uh, false confession, uh, what should they do? You have the right to remain silent like the officer <laughs> tells you. You got to do it. You may not have the ability, but by gosh, you have to try because yeah. you do not gain anything, anything from saying anything to an officer. Talk to your attorney. Talk to your attorney. So much of what defense attorneys do is not what you see on TV. It's the phone calls and the reaching out to the prosecutor before the filing, getting some evidence that the officer didn't see, doesn't know about, statements from other people saying, look, you have to discredit this person. She's making this allegation and it's all a bunch of, you know, a bunch of nonsense. And here's why she's saying it. Right. And then they can cross-examine her on that before they file the case and sometimes toss the case completely. So, so yeah, people in think front that of they that if they don't talk to the police, the police will think they're guilty. Who cares what the police think? Mm -hmm. It's evidence that matters. And I take this back to faulting our educational system because there is no educational training that kids get regarding their constitutional rights. It's almost as though it's it's a negative that the the school boards don't want kids to know about. It's almost un-American, according to many of them, mm -hmm. not to talk to the police, unless, of course, it's them. And then they quickly, no, I'm not saying anything. Right. So there's a little saying, the fish that doesn't open its mouth doesn't get caught. That doesn't apply in all cases, but the right. point is what Matt said is true. Talking to the police rarely helps and almost always hurts even when the person is trying to be honest because we're just human and we can make mistakes in certain facts or things that we say and that can be used against you. So we tell our clients, say nothing other than I want to talk with my lawyer. And then the time might come that you do want to speak to the officer and you coordinate, you know, a Castigar letter, Queen for a Day letter is what it's called, where you have a Queen for a day. You have a friend what? discussion with the <laughs> with the prosecutor who can't use the evidence that you give them. Listen, this is what I was doing. This is why I was there. You know, So wait, you get like a free uh, free ride as long as you're not lying. They are agreeing to sit down with you. So wait a minute. So, so wait. What's this called? Queen for a day. The Castigar letter. The Castigar letter. Based on a case. Yeah, I mean, it. it yeah, but it, it doesn't give you full immunity it, because it doesn't protect your client from, let's say, divulging information that can then lead to a third party that the prosecution could then interview and go s circle back to your client that way. So, in essence, it's kind of like a confession moment. Let me tell you exactly but what I'm involved with some in immunity. without okay. you using that against me. You otherwise wouldn't know about it, but possibly this will help you get the bigger fish you're looking at ah. or understand that this that what I've done is not even against the law. I was stupid. I shouldn't have been there, but I'm just at a wrong place, wrong time. Right. Right. I'm not your criminal. Like I'm if not you're, the guy you're it, let's say you're you're in a national park, you know, and you're trespassing in a national park. Uh, and you, so you're, you're committing a crime and it may be a misdemeanor federally, but you certainly don't want to be arrested for that. Uh, and you end up arrested and they charge you with something completely different that you had nothing to do with. You may have an interest in, in coming forward and saying, look, this is what I was doing. This is where, where I was at, but I certainly wasn't doing that. Right. 
Um, there's other reasons in, in which you example. would use yeah. the, the context of Castigar letter, um, especially in the federal system. But Well, look now, like with the Trump matters, General Flynn, when Flynn was arrested, there was a big question of whether he would cooperate or not. So what certainly happened is before the prosecutor would agree to give him a good plea or a good deal, the prosecutor arranged a meeting for a proffer, what lawyers informally in federal court called a queen for a day, as we've discussed. In other words, we're going to let you talk to us. You better tell us the truth. We're going to listen to it. We're going to evaluate it. And if we believe you, if we like what you say, we'll talk with your lawyers about resolving this case in a more favorable way. And that's what that's all about so that you don't have to wait until trial begins in order to try to get the case fairly and properly resolved. So without a doubt, Flynn went in under this queen for a day, semi-immunity type arrangement, told them what they wanted to know, and that's when they said, all right, we're going to offer the following plea to you, and that's what that's all about. Which so that's a good thing. That plea might be something more palatable to your client Absolutely. rather than the charges that are proposed it's to begin with. It's a good thing. Okay. In other words, listen, I was involved, but my role was this, not what you think I did. And Or, as Matt said, I really, I was there, but I didn't do it. I mean, every case is different, and the more sophisticated the cases are, yeah. the more involvement people have, but not necessarily criminal involvement. So it's right. a good chance to educate the prosecutors, and typically agents are in there, yeah. as to, listen, I know you found this, but that's not what really happened. Or I know you have this document, but that document explains this document that you don't have that I'm giving to you now. Mm -hmm. So it's really a good thing for justice Yeah, and if I'm you choose to take advantage of it. Yeah, and that's, uh, I've never uh, heard of that. That's uh, fascinating. Sometimes you don't uh, want to yeah. do it. Sometimes you do. Right, and that's when I guess you take the advice of your... Your counsel. Um, one thing that you mentioned, which is always a, a big topic for me, is that it seems that our um, that our country has fallen off uh, the wagon on teaching our uh, young people about civics and how the system works. And I'm just curious if you guys have any ideas or opinions on how we could uh, how we could start to educate um, you know our electorate. Uh, especially these young uh, next generation, uh, who I have a lot of hope for, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I just I see these these youngsters, and as I'm, you know, past fifty now, I, I'm hopeful because I want them to cover my social security that I've been <laughs> paying into for all these years. When you know, when I get to go collect, they've so, got to be taught the Bill of Rights. Yeah. It's real simple. The yeah. entire constitution. That's right. The entire constitution. But more but more than that, more to that is first of all, I can't believe that you're even fifty, but um, <laughs> secondly, what Jeff is really getting at reminds me of uh, in the eighties. I was born in nineteen seventy eight, okay? So I'm I've just dated myself. But um, there was a campaign that started in schools and it was purposefully put out through the White House administration uh, to educate on recycling. And the administration got it right because they got some data that, that said, you know what, if kids come home as part of a homework and as part of what they're told in school, mom, dad, we got to recycle. We've got to get a recycling bin. Mom, we've got to recycle plastics. We've got to recycle the tops, um, cereal boxes. 
that's where it happens. So what Jeff and Matt are saying when the Bill of Rights and the Constitution is taught is that if you have interactive Um, you know, sessions with kids where they're actually learning what is it like to have the Bill of Rights at play? Play it out with mom and dad at home. Come home and give give the kids a chance to be able to have conversations about the Bill of Rights. This is fun. This is something that should be engaging. And of course, it promotes family togetherness, just like the recycling thing, which worked, by the way. Because by the time I was in my 20s, I mean, I, I sort of thought like... If we don't recycle, that's really bad, you know? And when I go to a home or a business that doesn't recycle, I'm always like, wow, um, you should really write to your local city councilmen or women Judging to them figure out. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, you know, I mean, you, you know, I mean, recycling is huge here. And I feel p- particularly ab- about, you know, a certain way about it in the Grove because I only get the recycle truck uh, once every other week. I, I feel like it should come every week. <laughs> but, but anyway, that's what I think we should do is that sort of campaign nationally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I I think that's a great idea. Uh, I'm, listen, I always say that a lot of times these lessons um, fall to the parents, as most lessons in life do. But you know, teachers are are the de facto daycare. That's exactly uh, right, and uh, I think that's absolutely part of the problem. Yeah. Um, the crime is a byproduct, right? Everything we're talking about is a symptom of a greater problem. Yeah. And you know, what is that greater problem? And you know, I think we can all talk we all acknowledge that we probably voted for the, a different person for president. I think that, you know, me and Jeff certainly uh, we go way back and I we go <laughs> we all know that. I would say this about that. We all understand the value of our constitution and we understand how it compares to other governments in the world and to understand you cannot appreciate the value of our system of government and our constitution without comparing it to other countries and the history of how we got what we have. And what we have is truly incredible. It is not taught. I think what we have is a is a societal breaking a, a break in society where notions of I think a lot of our, the crime that we see is a product of poverty. And I think that poverty is a product of a family unit that has largely been corrupted. And it's been corrupted by uh, programs that have taken two-parent households and turned them into one. And there is no question that there is data that that has occurred over the last 40 years. And it has caused a, a perverse incentive to have... M- I have two kids and they're more more than overwhelming. I know people that are younger than me that have far more kids than I do. Yeah. And it do not have the the circumstances that I have to be able to try to manage it or the means. And right. And yeah. so the, the, and that's what I'm trying to say. The, these there's a lot of folks without means well overwhelmed right. and that's what causes this breakdown. Well, I think there's a breakdown also because this is a very materialistic society and a lot of success is based on what you have and how much you have and not what you've done and, and who you are inside as a person and uh, on and on and on and but again those are lessons that are taught at home and again our teachers are watching our children uh, eight hours a day and so that's where the lessons are coming from and it seems to me that over the last 40 years in this country um, a lot of the tax dollars have been diverted from schools and education and community to other areas of our government. And And I don't think that the teachers are 
educated in the area of our Constitution. Correct. Agreed. So they're not Agreed. competent to teach it. Right. But, you know, we have some of these school boards that are so right-wing that control the curricular that if, for example, a teacher were to talk about innocent people who have been freed from death row after serving 20 years, that would be put that would be stopped very quickly in many, many, many areas as though somehow it's un-American when, in fact, it shows that justice ultimately worked. And that's the same reason that people are afraid not to say anything to a police officer because they feel that, gee, I I better say something. I, I don't want to be rude. I don't want them to think I'm guilty. Whatever. The point is, People need to know their rights. It doesn't mean you're guilty by exercising your constitutional rights. Absolutely. Or by speaking up. Yeah. Right. Or that just, just because you speak up doesn't mean you're wrong. But it's it's very clear to me, you know, as we head into wrapping this program up, that uh, we have some uh, conservatives and some liberals on the program today. And uh, But I hear both of you saying the same thing. You want good things for your kids. Sure. You want good things for your community. Um, so... And I, I always believe that uh, about Americans in general. We want good things for our neighbors and our community and our kids. Um, yeah, but what's good a, things? Like right. some of these judges are so conservative and so right-wing and believe this preposterous theory that the Constitution is dead and not a living document that what they consider good may yeah. not be what you I, or I consider good. I, I, yeah, I strict, strict constructionalists versus the fact that it's a living, breathing, uh, changing document. I, I understand yes. that. It's not a left or right thing. Nobody believes in injustice. Nobody wants to see innocent people convicted. It, it, these are all things that we all agree on. It's not a left or right thing. We're so polarized right now, and we couldn't get through an hour without mentioning Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, and Rush Limbaugh. And I, I find that, and by the way, first time ever on this program <laughs> that any of those names have been dropped. I, I, I find it. I find that <laughs> they were fa- relevant. I find they it fascinating. Relevant. Like what a role the federal government is playing into our lives, and yeah. that's why I say, you know, from a conservative perspective, if you are a single mother with five children, and I know single mothers with 12 children. Well, I know a, a man younger than me with 12 children, a client of mine. I can't believe he has 12 children. I couldn't manage 12 children. How does he teach any one of those 12 kids about the First Amendment, much less the rest of them? How about, it's not how about, possible. How about his lesson in birth control? Right. And and his <laughs> kids are not going to be able to teach their kids about the, the necessary civic responsibilities that come with the upbringing that we were given. So I think it's cyclical. I think it, a government yeah. dependency program uh, mentality that's existed for the last 40 or 50 years is a is a root cause of it and the criminal and social ills that we have from it are a byproduct of it and a symptom of it yeah okay but that's a whole nother conversation that's a whole other show stay tuned like, <laughs> like we gotta talk about like what kept that that uh, sector of the population down yeah, who's responsible yeah. for that well, but, as, as they but, say you know uh, uh, um, that these slow moving laws that are put into place that are done by the by the the, the top you know one percent are done over a slow period of time legislatively and uh, you know that uh, when there is uh, when the moment comes for people to to react and make a, a swift change it's usually 
violent. And, yeah. Uh, that's been proven through a lot of, uh, you know, societies in the world history. And hopefully it won't come to that in this country. Um, but it, it is clear that there have been a lot of uh, these laws put into place over the last 40, 50 years that, that are pretty egregious to the the you know middle and down uh, population in this country. But you can't deny that what what really we all need uh, is prosecuting agencies that really place value in the state constitution, which by the way mirrors the U.S. Constitution. Our state statutes, which protect us, uh, we have statutes that actually give us rights to file motions to suppress based on illegally obtained evidence. These are state statutes. Right. The same thing appears in the U.S. Constitution. But I feel what Jeff feels when he walks into court and what Matt certainly feels, which is that there is a dilution of the concept of the value of the Bill of Rights. And it's almost as if you're you're up against a system where the rules Matt, of criminal Matt may procedure not feel that. <laughs> <laughs> the rules of criminal procedure and 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 we can all attest to this are not defendant favorable. What happens is you walk into court and you're already you've got a you've got a, a, an X marks the spot on your client's head yeah. and it's the defense attorney's job to breathe life into an otherwise lifeless number of a file sitting on a prosecutor's desk. To create humanity. And, the, and that, that's exactly right. And, and that's the, the role of the criminal defense attorney. It is, it, sometimes it's, look, there's no not me defense in this. You caught my guy on video red-handed. Let me show you why my guy shouldn't get five years like you're asking or right. 20 years like you're asking. And, and that's our role. And, you know, I, I see that as our role. And I, I think that that's a, that's a fantastic thing that our system has. You know, it, it gives, you know, prosecutor. Tutorial discretion works both ways. Yeah. If you get a bad one, you got to take it to a supervisor. You get a good one, you stick with him, and you, you cut your deal with him right there. So well, it always it always makes my heart feel better when I see a hardcore conservative <laughs> come in and uh, that has at least some respect for the Constitution and humanity. And because and, uh, you well, don't you always know, hear that, you know the definition of a <laughs> of a liberal, a conservative under investigation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that does it for this episode. Wow. Before we wrap Thank up, you. one of the things we like to ask our guests, because we're all of us that are involved in this program are involved in the music uh, world, so we like to know what you guys are listening to. So who's on your playlist this week? Who are you guys listening to musically? Yesterday in the gym, it started off with Toto, Africa, and uh, I think I had some Journey mixed in there before it was over. So all right. There, there you go. <laughs> Journey, great. Great. With the original Steve Perry. Yeah. Yes. And Chameleonaire, <laughs> right. and then my kids make fun of me because I still like Billy Joel and Jim Croce uh, and Cat Stevens. Great writers. Right wonderful. What's great his writers. name now? Yosef uh, yeah, Mohammed Mo or Yosef something? Yosef Mohammed. Something yeah. like that. But. Yeah, yeah. Cat Stevens. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. that we've got some of that at home too. Yosef Islam, I think, yes. is his name actually. Uh, we've got um, we've got Cat Stevens on our Pandora, and my husband loves to play Billy Joel for my daughter who's 19 All right. months. All right. But right now, what's on cue, like 24-7, is the soundtrack and the movie Moana and also Coco, which is the recent one. Nice. You know, so basically we're singing Spanish songs or we're singing like, you know, a Hawaiian dialect. <laughs> nice. Uh, but it's it's pretty great having a kid who's 19 months old. Awesome. All right. For uh, the, the team here at Felony Miami, 
I'm your host, Joe Stone. Don't forget to check us out online, FelonyMiami.com. You can check out the show on Apple Music, Spotify, your favorite RSS feeds. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Well,